Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers. Believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Hello friends, welcome back to The Grid. This is Jennifer Shahadi, and today I have a very special guest, Landon Tice. He is a poker champion, and he has had so much success in 2020 in particular. He's only 21 years old. He started the year playing 2-5 online and is now up to 50-100. And one thing that's really exciting about Landon is that as his success explodes this year, he's been doing a lot of giving back to the community with his popular Discord server, Twitch channel, Substack. He also does commentary, often on Joey Ingram's channel, who is one of his most uh, vocal mentors. And more than anything, I wanted Landon on the grid um, because he picked off a really, really terrible hand for three offsuits. So thank you for that. But on top of that, he shows a really contagious passion for the game and for theory and the grid in particular. So today, Landon is bringing us a fascinating hand from a $1,600 tournament against uh, Vine Nguyen, and this is on a stone bubble. Landon, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, of course. It's going to be a lot of fun. The way we start the grid usually is we just go right into the hand. You've got 3-4 offsuit. Tell us a little bit about the context. Um, where this hand took place and at what point the tournament it was. So this was on the stone bubble and the entire tournament field is playing hand for hand to where the next person that busts the tournament is effectively not going to min cash and then everyone else is going to make the money. So I'm on the button with 3-4 offsuit and piles at the table massively chip leading. So I open to 3x trying to take down the blinds and I'm mostly going to do this with any two hands that I have just because the other two people at my table had stack sizes to where they didn't have to go all in and they could just wait to make the money. So the small blind calls, which is a little bit concerning because he's a good enough player to know that he's not really supposed to play that many hands because if I start barreling chips into the middle, he's going to have a hard time defending because he's in a very precarious situation if all the money goes in. So he calls and the big blind folds. At this point, he has about 60 big blinds and I probably have like 100. So we're really deep this at this stage in the tournament, like because most people have around average stack is maybe like 35 bigs. So we're deeper than most people in the tournament. We get to the flop and the flop is king three deuce, all diamonds. I have the four of diamonds and he checks and I bet quarter pot. So he's going to fold about a bunch of all of his mists on the flop and some pairs that he might have called with just because it becomes harder to play in later streets. And maybe he was trying to, to set mine and maybe win a big pot on the bubble. Like a hand like eights without a diamond is in a pretty rough spot because I'm going to be barreling a lot. So he continues, which is kind of scary, but I'm assuming he's not going to fold any top pair hands, like an ace king that he might've slow played out of fear for 
getting jammed on in this spot or a hand like a suited ace that he might want to see a flop with to try to make the nuts. And then the turn is an offsuit queen and he checks with a diamond and with just more chips and covering him. I'd bet around pot in this spot and he ends up calling, which now I'm pretty concerned because after calling a big bet on the turn, he's probably not going to have many hands that want to fold the river, depending on what the river is. And the river is a complete blank and he leads for about half pot. And so when he does that, I I didn't think he had the nuts anymore because if he did, he'd probably want me to, to bluff because I would bluff a lot in this spot because chips to me aren't as valuable as they are to him. And so I jam pretty quickly. So as almost as soon as he puts in the chips is when I say all in. Like he literally puts out his bet and I like snap say all in as, as, as fast as I possibly can. And he tanked for like five minutes and it got to the point where he was looking at the clock just to see if anybody busted to where if he made the money, then it would obviously be a snap call for him. I guess to his demise, nobody busted. So this was the last hand before maybe 12 other tables had more hands to play. So it's basically a spot where if he calls and he's wrong and I have the nuts here, he's going to be in a really like he's he's busted and he doesn't cash and no one wants to play a tournament for almost two days. Well, two days effectively and then and then bust the tournament as the last guy when you could have not put yourself in that position in the first place. So he ends up tanking for five minutes and uh, he makes the call with Jack 10 of diamonds and uh, he wins that one. We had heart. Yes. Well, a diamond apparently, but uh, everything about this hand is so interesting. So let's start from the beginning. Pre-flop, you have four, three offsuit and you open the button explaining that you're the chip leader at the table and you're on the stone bubble. You're playing hand for hand. So you're going to open a hundred percent, 95%. I think I'm opening any two. Okay. So even seven deuce. Got it. And you open 3x, so your idea is just to go a little bit bigger because you're on the stone bubble, or would you normally, with these stack sizes, go about 3x? Just because of the bubble, which is, looking back, is a mistake because opening to 2 should probably gain the same result, but there's also some sort of incentive to not allow the big blind to see flops, just because he was kind of playing a lot of hands. Because there's a lot more value in me raising any 2 and winning pre-flop than there is in trying to play post-flop. So in the moment, I chose a bigger race size than I normally take. I would normally go about 2x, 2.1x or so. And yeah, I'm basically opening my entire range because they're not really incentivized to play many hands because they're very easily going to make the money. And then they can start kind of getting back into the mix again and trying to build chip stacks. Right. And you mentioned that um, once he called, you were a little bit nervous. Like what, how do you feel about his range at that point when he has 60 bigs in the exact bubble and can certainly fold to a min cash and he just flats a small blind like what are you thinking he's he's got range wise so i think he has like pairs with a diamond like some middling pairs with a diamond some kings with a diamond like king queen off with a diamond kind of stuff king jack off things that he might not want to three bet because i am gonna have a pretty not wide four bet range because i'm gonna he is a stack to where i don't i can't really go too crazy but i am gonna four bet a little bit more with some blockers like an ace like some ace x offhands that might just be folds to the three bet could perform pretty well as a four bet because blocking aces it's less likely he's gonna he's gonna jam on me yeah his range kind of just looks like what it is like i thought he had some some pairs with a diamond some single diamond hands some ace x off with the ace of diamonds kind of thing and then some higher diamonds like the queen of diamonds like a queen jack off with the queen of diamonds like something that he wants to see a flop with pre-flop and doesn't really want to fold because he does have 60 bigs and 
it's not set in stone that I'm going to be putting in all of my chips later down the line in this hand. Like sometimes you just get, I just get a board that's not very good for like my range and is better for his to where I'm just shutting down and he does get to win the pot post flop. So it's not like every hand I get, I just get to like bet, bet jam all in on, like, on anyone's. Yeah. And if you are going to bet, bet jam, you probably have to make it pretty big on all the streets, right? With a 60 big blind depth. Right. So what do you feel about his three bet range? for getting it in considering he's on the stone bevel and that min cash is worth you know so much theoretically and yet there's this leveling war because obviously you're opening 100 percent, so right. it's more valuable for him to three bet because he's going to get a lot of garbage hands to fold so um what do you feel like this particular player would be three betting for value and like what he should be three betting for value i think he should be pretty in line in the sense of most of his equity wants to be driven through like higher pairs like just having strong pairs because ace king off you are flipping versus range but you don't necessarily dominate anything that I'm going to get all in pre because I'm never going to get in like ace queen in that spot for all the marbles and I could just have a hand like tens or jacks to where he's flipping and then he's flipping for 60 big blinds for his tournament life on the stone bubble when he easily has a min cash so most of his hands that he's going to want to bet are probably going to be things like around pairs and then hands that block my strongest four bets, like ace-x hands, like ace-queen, ace-jack, like all those sort of hands. We're too deep for him not to three bet them because I'm not just instantly going to four bet my entire range, especially because I know that he's not supposed to get out of line in the spot because he already has a min cash locked up. So it's not really like a leveling war, more of just understanding that his range is supposed to be tight by default to where he probably isn't going to be taking on the volatility of raising a hand like seven, eight suited as a three bet, just because if he does get four bet, it's going to be pretty tough for him just because the pot's going to be bigger and he's got more to risk than I do. So most of his three bets are going to be mostly like high card blocker type hands, like King, Queen, Ace, King, Ace, Queen. And then when he gets four bet, those hands start to fold. And then his strongest pairs just get the money in like Queens plus. I think that seems about reasonable. And you weren't even sure about Ace, King. You thought that he might just flat that. I think he could three bet it. I think flatting makes sense sometimes too. But there is value in like gaining these chips pre because I am opening a very wide range and I'm not just going to like call three bets or just like four bet aggressively just because I have a chip lead. But it's a pretty tough spot and like I haven't done, I haven't played tournaments that much myself. I think I've played tournaments for about six months starting in July for the WSOP online series. I think my weakest parts of like my tournament game have to be like ICM like bubbles, like on the bubble, like as chip leader and like lower big blinds effective because as a cash player, I'm always used to playing with at least a hundred. So like there's a lot more nuance and intricacy with wider ranges because you have to defend as the big blind versus smaller bets. It's really interesting. And it kind of gave me a new perspective on tournaments as a whole, because when I first heard of tournaments, I was like, Oh, there's a lot of luck involved in the sense of variance. And it's really hard to win tournaments. And then like the more you study, the more you realize that's kind of true, but the more you realize that because you don't know that much, it's really hard for the field that you're playing against in most spots to have a firm understanding of what's going on in every spot in the game tree. And I'm sure even the best players will tell you they make mistakes all like all the time. And it's nothing that can really be avoided. Yeah, and it's hard to study these spots too, because for instance, if you were to plug in this spot into a solver, like with the the king three deuce, all diamonds with your range and his range. Like the small blind would just be like leading out everything because the range is just so much better than yours, you know? Right. Considering you're opening 100%, do you feel like 
he should be leading out a lot on this particular flop or just like in general. I think it's probably way too hard for, well, at least in this spot, like I'm going to have more of a nut advantage than him in the sense of I'm going to have like the nut, like nut flushes a little bit more because he might just fold some ace do suited type stuff because he doesn't want to deal with what happens post flop. And it could get kind of tricky if he like flops an ace and all that kind of implied like reverse implied odds of making a hand that's not as good as you want it to be or making a really good hand that's just beat by better where like sometimes you just get cooler with like two pair over two pair like trips versus trips and all of those scenarios to where you can just avoid them by folding pre and it's really difficult to like at least have lead ranges when you're not really that studied with them just because it might not be a mistake to make a mistake on the flop on the turn in river is where it kind of gets dicey because if you don't know how to like balance your range appropriately, you're just going to make a lot of mistakes in a lot of spots because you're not losing any EV on the flop. But if you bet a hand that's supposed to check on the turn, like that's where the mistakes are going to show up. You don't have experience in those spots, so you're just much more likely to err. Going back to pre-flop real quick, I just thought of something interesting about the spot that it's actually maybe a slight advantage for him to be in the stone bubble with a hand like ace-king because... Obviously, there's a chance somebody else busts, right? And then they share the bubble money, right? Or multiple people bust. Right. Whereas if he was like two off the money, like that would be less likely. And then he would literally just be torching the chances of cashing. This is kind of a funny equity calculation that actually you could lose and not have zero, right? I guess like what he was trying to do, um, at least on River for sure, was just see if somebody busted the tournament. Because if somebody busts the tournament, then he's automatically guaranteed a min cash where I'm probably, well, I'm definitely going to be over bluffing. And he has a really good hand and a really good spot to call. So his hand's going to be worth a lot more then than it would be on the stone bubble. Oh, of course. That's for sure. Yeah. It was hand for hand, right? Yeah. So if somebody, somebody both busted on the same hand. He probably have more chips than whoever busted because he had a pretty big stack. So he would probably get the min cash over someone else if somebody else busted. That really does add a very interesting dynamic to the hand and just makes it kind of like, a weird spot where he doesn't have to be quite as bubble sensitive as usual. I, li- I like that. But it sounds like he just visually eyeballed the room and saw that nobody busted and then it wasn't on the, the clock. So right. he kind of knew at that point that it was a stone bubble situation. So the king three deuce, you bet small and um, he check called. So I know that on monochrome boards, like betting small is, is very solver approved. And yet in this spot, because it's a stone bubble, sometimes larger sizings are used in general. So how did you kind of like weigh those two factors and ultimately decide to bet small? So in this spot, I kind of just go with what I know in the sense that I know that most of the time I'm probably going to be betting small with my entire range, regardless of what my range looks like, at least playing like a button versus a small blind kind of spot. It's a little bit different for me because my range is wider and his range is much tighter. So he is going to have a lot of suited hands. So if he has something that doesn't connect with the board at all, he's just going to fold and I'm going to win mm-hmm. the pot then and there. And if he continues, it's probably likely he has a piece in some capacity with a strong pair or a pair plus a draw or like enough a straw. So his range is very, very condensed when he, even when he does call the turn bet, flop bet for a small size, just because he's going to be folding a lot anyways based on the nature of the situation. Even in a non-stone bubble, it's hard to defend to meet like a minimum defense frequency in on a board like that to a 25% bet. So on the right. bubble, you can you can be sure people are going to make excuses to chuck those cards away. Right. And then there's a queen, offsuit queen that comes on the turn. And, and, and at this point, when he checks, you decide to bet pot, right? So what went into that? So now I'm trying to get him to fold all of his small pairs that might have wanted to set mine that call flop that would fold turn like sixes with a diamond, things like that. 
and then some relatively strong hands that might have made a pair like a queen like if he had like a like a diamond with a queen and i'm basically in this spot kind of thinking about kind of what went through my mind like specifically whether it's correct or not the more i look at this hand the more i think about it and the more i've talked to some friends about it a turn check seems really solid because we also have a pair so like we have a pair and a flush draw on this spot we are beating the naked ace of diamonds at this point if you flat call the hand like ace 10 off with the ace of diamonds which is pretty important so it's not like we have stone nothing so yeah like when i bet pot i basically thought about what i would want to do if i had to not flush in this situation and it would be to bet bigger because i want to represent that i have i'm just polarizing at this point to represent that I flopped a pretty big hand and the turn didn't really change my the hand strength of my specific hand. Because I probably wouldn't take this size with king-queen just because I would want to bet smaller to allow him to continue with worse hands. But with some flushes and I would want to protect if I had like a weak flush, like let's say I had like a low low diamond card flush and want to protect the naked ace of diamonds, that's probably going to call anyways. I would want to bet bigger. And then I can't really leverage his entire stack if I don't bet bigger on the turn because we're so because the stack bet is so much behind to where I can't really bet small twice and then go for like a 10x pot jam on the river, which the more I think about it actually kind of sounds pretty nice just because at that point, my range is clearly defined as like the nut flush or nothing to where that seems like a decent idea as well to instead of betting pot to kind of bet smaller again, because all of his hands that kind of pick up equity in some form aren't really going to be loving the spot very much. And he's just, he's just going to probably fold outright with his small pairs with a diamond on the queen turn because it's like, oh, even if I make a diamond, my flush might not be good and my sixes might not be good anymore either. So now we've gone through all the options. Check is something that a lot of your friends like as you, you have your, your equity and then you can get him off those like sixes and sevens and eights hands you were talking about earlier in the river if you need to. Then you've also bet big, which you've given a good argument for. And now you also like the idea of betting small again. Yeah. When you say small, do you mean like, 30% or 50. Yeah, like 30%. Okay. And most of the time, and it's what I see with like solve outputs a lot, especially in, in tournaments, depending on the spot, like most things are normally mixed just because the EV difference of picking an action with a combo that has equity can't really be that big of a mistake in a blanketing statement. Like obviously there's some spots where you don't want to take a bet size with a certain hand. Like if you flop top set of aces, you don't want to just like that pot because you want him to continue with worse hands like you want your villain to continue with worse hands you uh did bet pod and he called and then the river came um a seven of hearts so a blank and he let out he donked bet for like half pot Mm -hmm. he bet like 75k into 150 and at this point i was extremely confident he did not have the nut flush because at that point if he had the nut flush he would want to allow me to continue bluffing to where i was going to polarize and represent a hand that strong that when you have the nuts there you just most of the time it's very hard to balance your range by like starting to lead with the nuts in this spot especially on the on the stone bubble because he's a competent player and he kind of knows what's going on to where i'm going to be bluffing a lot so i kind of figured it to be a spot where he had a really strong hand like a flush like i thought he had a flush but i didn't think he had the nut flush so i kind of disregarded my overall hand strength and I just kind of turned my hand into like just representing a hand that I would have in range at some at some percent, like any ace-x of diamonds sort of hand or any queen-x of diamonds for the second nut flush. Just because like the nuts is really good, like queen high flush is like just as good in the spot. And if you get if I get coolered, it's not that big of a deal because I still have chips in play and I just chalk it up to a pretty sick cooler and then I move on with my life and I still win cash. But for him, like if he has the third nuts, like he did in this case like with the jack high flush and I have 
combos of queen x suited, which I'm going to have in full because I'm going to open the button with my entire range and the ace x suited hands. I'm going to have a little bit more combos of the nuts in my overall range, but I am going to have a lot more bluffs too. And you said that you beat him into the pot almost with your hand. Yeah, like he bet 75k and I, I just instantly jammed for like 225k effective. And it felt really good in the moment. Like I didn't really care if I got called and I was kind of happy I made the play in, in, in real time because I'm sure like he found a call, which is pretty tough to do like on the stone bubbles of a, of a tournament of a 1600. And I'm sure there's a vast majority of people in the field that would find a fold on the river just because they've all seen that story before of somebody jamming in all the money on the river and getting shown the nuts and probably would have thought that this was no different scenario. I was interested in the speed. Like you mentioned you, you beat him into the pot. Do you feel like that is something you did for any kind of like live? Yeah, I think I sort of played in like a meta of like snap jamming to like look stronger, but like it's not something I really do at all in live tournaments or like in any spot to like snap jam just because most of the time I want to take a like think about what I'm doing. And I don't know if that played too much in his decision of calling just because it did it take five minutes to call. It wasn't like he thought, oh, he insta jammed for my tournament life. He's got to be weak here because I also have to have a combo in my range that is going to want to bluff jam the river. And not even that, I also have to implement that. Like I also have to try to bluff the guy. It's not an easy spot to kind of just like stuff in more chips than he had after calling two bets and showing river aggression. But it was one of those things where I had too much heart and uh, I tried to get him to fold a pretty good hand, which I knew. It didn't work out for me, unfortunately, in this situation. But I'm happy with like the heart in the moment. But looking back, it's kind of like, yeah, this is a bit this is a bit much. Question about the queen of diamonds, Lush. Like if you had the whatever, because you're obviously opening everything. So like, let's say the... The queen six of diamonds on the river. I mean, it probably does matter in terms of like blockers, like obviously having the queen jack of diamonds would be a different situation. Mm-hmm. But you you mentioned that you think it's an easy value jam with those hands. But considering that he almost folded jack 10, like how ca- can you like reconcile those two things? So I think the queen, I think like the second nut flush and the nut flush here are just too strong of hands to not try to go for the max with especially just like, at least in a theoretical perspective, especially when I'm going to have so many bluffs revolving around the naked offsuit ace of diamonds to where my value range has to be expanded. And I'm not saying that like, it's the best idea in practice to do, because I don't think anyone, at least like the vast majority of that field in the tournament, if the given giving them a hand like king queen for two pair without a diamond is going to be an extremely difficult call where they're probably just going to fold. It's just that I have to hope with the second nut flush Maybe like as like an exploit, I would probably just like raise to a smaller size, like non all in sort of thing to where if he calls, he still has chips behind like a min raise kind of thing. Yes, I like that. I like that because how many times when you did go all in, how much was it times his initial bet? I think so. He made it 75K and I made it like 150K effective more. It was basically like not that big of of a jam effective to how much he bet. But then again, like there is that psychological pressure of like busting and being out of the tournament. To where like if you give them like a quote unquote fair price and if they're good in this spot that it's a really big pot in the first place, they could feel kind of pot committed to just pay it off and hope that they're beating a worse value hand, which I never have. And then you would just fold if they go all in and just hope. Right. That they- and if, yeah. And if they if, if he finds a jam, then congratulations. Yeah, because he's mostly just going to call with all of his flushes that aren't the nuts because he'd be pretty scared of the like just getting called by the nuts if he jams on the river. And I think it's particularly interesting if you have like something like the queen jack of diamonds or the queen ten of diamonds, because then you really are 
especially the queen jack of diamonds, because then you're really limited in the amount of hands that he would be flatting right. from the small blind that also have made flushes, except for, of course, the smaller ones. No, the ones that beat you also, the ace, X, or diamonds. Right. So he just has enough flush or he has smaller flushes, and it's kind of scary. Yeah, I think, I think min raise would be a pretty nice thing to do in that spot. And this spot in itself doesn't really matter that much, like strategically in the sense of like, this spot's not going to really come up again, like where I have this exact combo on this exact board versus the same person. Yeah. So like the things that I would take away from this for myself is like understanding what I want to do holistically on the bubble in a spot if it does occur. And while chips are important, it's also nice for me to not lose an 120 big blind pot and be chip leading the tournament after the bubble is over. Like that's a really good result too. So I don't necessarily have to fire too hard and try to win the pot after he's shown some pretty solid defense on the first two streets and then showing river aggression on the third. He did end up calling with the, the Jack 10 of diamonds and you lost a big pot. I know that you love the study. You're a major um, student of the game, if you will. Yeah. And how would you go about, or did you go about um, studying this hand? Because as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a, a wonky spot in that, you know, it almost immediately disintegrates in terms of like trying to put it into a solver because, you know, the, the small blind would just be like leading out and then the rest of the results would be bollocks. Would you node lock that? Like, how would you study a hand like this? Right. So in a spot like this, it was mostly just kind of anecdotal where I told my friends about mm -hmm. it and they're all very successful tournament players. And they've seen the spot enough times to kind of know what makes sense and what doesn't. Kind of there's like normally a group consensus when it comes to things like this, where like some people like kind of more aggressive and like love the idea of piling in all the money. But then again, most successful tournament players also know that when you get called twice and then face a strange river aggression in a very unusual line, it's probably just a really good hand. And it's really hard to make money in tournaments getting people to fold really good hands. This was a tournament at the Venetian, right? Um, can you tell right. us about your decision, controversial decision to play live poker during the pandemic and how you mitigate that risk? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty like good spot, I guess, to quote unquote play tournaments. And I just kind of did all I could to kind of stay away from people and like wash, like, wash my hands and like sanitize like every 30 minutes or so. It is quite the, the whole like controversy of like, going outside versus not going outside, which I'm not particularly like the greatest of like knowing what the right idea is, because at the same time, like there is EV to be had in the streets, but then there's also the whole conversation of being kind of being considerate of other people and staying inside. So I don't really have like the greatest answer for that, to be honest. This was before like the holiday season when things started to surge even even further. Um, right. But yeah, it's uh, live poker just is so unsanitary because of the chips. Yeah. So it's just such a difficult thing to imagine kind of like coming back in a safe way until everybody's vaccinated, really. Yeah, I agree. It's just kind of one of those things where I kind of saw an opportunity and I sort of just kind of made a decision to kind of play and, and kind of do my part to kind of stay away from people and also just but I mean, it's obviously really difficult to do that. And I just sort of saw that there was value in the tournament and kind of just wanted to kind of fire it. So I just did that. Talk to me about your life right now in Las Vegas, as you sound like you have just like different groups of training partners and that you're really passionate about studying the game. I'm curious to hear about like what a day in the life tends to be. So for me, I don't really leave the house at all, like for anything. 
just because <laughs> I naturally just like sit in my room and enjoy running sims unless it's for like a live tournament obviously like I'll, I'll play a live tournament I guess because I did that <laughs> but yeah like a lot of my time consists of staying in my room and running sims and playing online poker and kind of just pursuing my craft so to speak and a lot of it's discord calls with friends of mine and we run spots and we talk about them and then sort of do that for like a bunch of hours on end and it's pretty enjoyable for me because I was never much of like a partier or like a social at least externally like going outside sort of thing so life for me didn't really change from the pandemic just because I was in my room regardless so like my mom kind of calls me all the time and is always concerned and she's like oh like how's Vegas Vegas must be amazing and I'm like yeah Vegas is basically just like Florida but my friends are here and I have WSLP to, to be able to play on that's regulated online poker so I'll be okay like my life didn't really change you used to be really into chess yeah I was talk about that relationship with your brothers you're all all three of you were playing like the same events uh yeah so basically we were all playing the same events when we were in like pre-k and then obviously when I got a little bit older I got was playing a little bit like higher level stuff because I sort of got into chess at a young age and then my brothers kind of followed suit just because I was playing chess and they'd be like what is what is that I, we want like I want to learn that from there we sort of battled a bunch and just played a bunch of chess against each other for like a couple years and my sort of history with chess was I was, I think, second in the region in like Southeast when I was in pre-K playing against K through three. So I was pretty good, I guess, for my age at the time. And then sort of fell out of chess when I was like probably seven or eight or nine, just because like I remember one day when my friends were all outside playing around and I wanted to join them, but I had a chess lesson and I was like, hey, is it possible to not have chess today? because I want to play with outside with my friends. And then, so I did that and I went outside and I guess I also like, I just really wanted to spend time with my friends. And then chess was kind of pretty consuming, at least for where I wanted to get to it. And I don't think like the child version of me necessarily wanted to give up playing outside with my friends for chess. That's amazing because like that story that you just told me was like the exact opposite of the story you said about living in Vegas and enjoying all of your friends on the computer and never going outside. Right, exactly. Now now I'm just playing poker, but instead of outside, I, I want to stay inside and talk to my friends. Well, in the end of the day, that means that it's where your friends are and your friends are on, on the computer. So that's like the place to be. It, was, it wasn't about being outside. It was about being with your friends. Exactly. In Griffin and Dalton, your built-in training partners, how was that relationship? Did they continue to play chess or did you all kind of phase out of it around the same time? So we all kind of phased around the same time because I sort of switched to from playing chess to playing golf as like more of an outside activity and I had some friends that I made when I was that age that also played golf like I would go to golf I went to like a golf summer camp and there was a bunch of kids around my age all playing golf and that was really fun to me so I picked up golf and I got pretty good at golf I was third in the state when I was like 10 for U.S. kids and sort of took that really seriously because I that was like the next fun thing to do on my agenda. And then my brothers also started playing golf. So like, I've always been very like competitive with them. We were very, like a very competitive relationship when we were younger. As you know, like people would ask us like, who's the best at X, Y, or Z. And we would all say ourselves. And it's kind of how it, how it is and how it's been for the past multiple years, especially growing up, which makes sense because we all want to think that we're better than each other because of like a hierarchy. It's kind of funny looking back at like at those days, like I'm like really old or something, but 
This is like 10 years ago. A lot of people have commented that you seem to be really good at making friends with people that, you know, can help your career and also apparently enhance the enjoyment of your life. And I think about that triplet relationship. Is there is there any relationship there to being one of of three brothers and having that like immediate like, you know, um, tie and your ability to make friends easily? Yeah. So growing up in school, I didn't really have the greatest friends in school just because I was mostly by myself focusing on things like when I remember when I was in like pre-K in elementary school, like my friends that I met at school would have play dates or whatever. And I'd be like, no, like I can't, I can't do that because I have a chess lesson at five. I can't do this thing because I have a different priority. And I never really found something I really enjoyed doing in middle school besides playing video games. So like I never really had like that many friends growing up, at least not in the conventional, like you go to their house, you talk to them every day and they're more like school friends. But then like, I guess the amount of passion and enjoyment I have for poker sort of helped me kind of be a little bit more open to talking to other people, especially because poker is something that I feel pretty confident in when I talk about it. So I never really had that sort of thing when I was growing up just because of, I guess, like bullying in some capacity when I was in like middle school, because like not very many kids like play chess and it was like, okay, like why are you playing chess? Or it's like, why are you like playing golf? And it's like all this other stuff where it's like not conventional at the very least. And it wasn't necessarily the easiest, but it definitely helped me sort of realize like who I didn't want to be in a, as a person. And it definitely wasn't the kids that were like being mean to me when I was like younger. So from like my enjoyment in poker and like how much I love poker, I basically decided to be the opposite of that and like talk to as many people as I can. And like, I'll be the first to tell someone like, if I think like they're a great player, I'd be like, yeah, like, you play really well. Like it was, it's fun to play again. Like it's fun to battle. Like you play really well and sort of compliment in that way. And I've always just sort of had that pull towards this game just because chess and golf were things that I guess I wanted to do based off my parents sort of wanting me to in the sense of they thought chess would be good for me because I didn't really know what to do when I was younger. Like I would stay inside and like I would read books and I would do things like quote unquote intellectual stuff for like a younger child. So they thought the chess would be a pretty good fit for me. And it was, and I did really well. And then golf was another like mental sort of sport. And I ended up doing pretty well in that too. But poker was like the first thing that I chose for myself where I was like, yeah, like, this is really fun. Like, I want to see how far I can go in with this. And that sort of stemmed my drive for the game for sure. Yeah. And your brothers, like, how do they feel about your poker success? They feel really good about it and they're really happy for me. And I'm sure that it drives them to like be better, I guess, in whatever metrics it is that they find for themselves, for their own lives and their own sort of endeavors and because one of my brothers is doing real estate and my other brother is still in school and I'm sure like me being successful and like having tournament scores and having a really amazing year like last year it was obviously like the, like the best year of my career of two years but it definitely motivates him to do more and to I guess keep up so to speak but at the end of the day like I'm obviously gonna love my family for like regardless of what they of what he does in in like his realm of business and I, I know they're just really happy for my success because they know how bad I wanted it. Like I remember when I was in college and I was effectively broke and I needed money for something. My brother was the first person to give me money and be like, yeah, I think you're going to be fine in poker. Like I'll help you out. And from there, we still talk about that today where it's like, yeah, like he's always been there for me and he always will be. And that's the same way I am for them. Right. It's funny. You're switching from using them to he. It's like, a, I guess it's a triplet thing. Yeah. My brother Dalton was the one that like spotted me like some money. So I guess for him, like that moment was like between me and him. But it's the same thing for me and my other brother who's in FSU doing his own thing. And I'm like, I guess I'm invested in his success emotionally in the sense of, of course, I want him to live his best life, so to speak. And whatever that looks like for him, I have no idea. 
but for him, he'll figure it out. And I know he will. And I'll, and I'll always be there if he needs anything. And I guess they will also be there if they need anything too. You, you said that you got bullied in school and that it kind of made you realize the type of man you wanted to be. What was like the worst like example of that type of bullying? Like what kind of bullying were you experiencing? Because it sounds like that was at a time where probably like this was like uh, post smartphone usage. So was it more like kind of like online bullying or live bullying? It was more like online poker, live poker, online bullying, live bullying. (laughs) Most of it was not really social media based, mostly just like live and like friends and stuff where it's like people talk to me in some regard, but like I was kind of friends with people, but not like friends with people in the sense of like, it'd be like, what'd you do this weekend? It's like, I went to X person's house and I was never invited to X person's house. So I always had like school friends and was kind of like excluded from stuff. And it was just sort of something that I didn't really want to, I guess, necessarily think about too much. Well, obviously, like in the sense of what was going on. And I was like, okay, I I guess I can talk to people in in school. And I guess when I'm at home, they're having weekend plans and I'm not. And I also switched schools and I was in like third grade. So when people were younger and they came up through the school through kindergarten to eighth grade, they've been friends since pre-K and kindergarten. So it's like when someone comes in in like third grade, it's not always the easiest transition. And I wasn't necessarily the most sociable person at school either. I was just sort of always like by myself. And I don't know, I guess there's some sort of like outsider sort of thing going on. I can't really think about any specific instances. It was more like verbal stuff of like insulty kind of like it was never like physical or anything. It was just more like just like insulty, like word wise. And I was like, yeah, this doesn't really feel really good to get like called names. So I like I never really did that to anyone else just because I knew how bad it felt. It's just hard for me because I know that like bullying just seems like some kind of thing that cycles regardless of the tools and the generation. And it, it seems that part of it is adolescents kind of becoming themselves and placing boundaries over themselves and their friend group and other people. And is it really possible for it to ever be like completely eliminated? Maybe the worst, the worst expressions of it that include, you know, truly cruel and evil acts, but to totally get rid of it during that adolescent stage seems like almost a lost cause. What do you think? I think it like it's not going to go away in the sense that most adolescents, like myself included, for sure, like when I was that age, like definitely like feel that sort of competitive nature between someone else that they're in proximity with. Just because like, if there is a hierarchy of like, who's the best at something, and a bunch of people think it's this person, and the person that's like, not that guy is obviously going to feel like slighted in that way, and then sort of feel certain emotions as in like, oh, like, like, I want to feel not I don't even think bullying, like, at least from a child perspective is like, I want to bully you to make myself feel better. I don't think that's what's going on. It's more of like, I don't like that you're better than me at this. And I'm going to make you feel worse, so to speak, which is pretty similar to like the whole natural thing of that that happens in bullying but I mean it's been so long since I've had to deal with it because like the support that I've had from the poker community ever since sort of making myself known and doing things with Joey and putting in volume and having some really incredible results has been nothing but kindness and it's a complete opposite of what life was like when I was younger like when I was younger like my parents and like very close friends that I grew up with like neighbors were always really happy for my success but it's just a different sort of feeling seeing both sides of it And I just wanted to be friends with people when I was in middle school and appearance could have had something to do with it. Like I wasn't necessarily the most like attractive kid, so to speak, but it's nice to sort of not have to deal with it now. And I remember when I was younger and going through some high school stuff of like not really bullying, 
but just like I would I would always like fluctuate in weight just because I would get like depressed and sad and like I'd eat a bunch of food and like I wouldn't work out. And then I would switch and then have a like a mentality of like I don't want to like go to like these depressing acts anymore. So I'm gonna start exercising and like doing better things. Like I remember in, in seventh grade, I like over the summer and during the school year, like before we were graduating, I just sort of like made it a goal of mine to like I guess lose weight before the end before the start of the school year because like I remember when I was in school like every single summer was like that opportunity to be someone else where it's like okay like you look like this now but like you have three months to kind of work on that so like summers are always like that sort of thing for me but then like you get into the habit of like veering off track and thinking that you have enough time to like fully change yourself in like the last two weeks coming up to when school starts it was never something I took really seriously unless I was really into it and I, I remember when I was in eighth grade before going to high school that was definitely like the turning point one where it's like, yeah, like you have three months to kind of look better to where I was like running on the treadmill every day for like 45 minutes. I was eating well, I was drinking water. Like I was doing all of those things that like help for diet and like weight loss to where I lost like probably around 20 pounds over the summer. And when I came into freshman year in high school, like I looked really, really skinny. I have some of those pictures on my Facebook. So like I look back at them and I'm like, yeah, wow. Like, like you could pretty easily see like the transition of like seventh to eighth grade me and then like ninth grade me. Nice. It's been a lot in a good way from the support that I've gotten from the poker community, definitely. I'm really grateful for it. That's a great way to think about the summer. I love that. Before we close, I wanted to do a, a little quick game in which I give you different ways to like try to improve at poker and you rank them from zero to 10 and how effective you think they are, okay? Okay, let's do it. All right, running Sims on specific hands? Uh, probably like an eight, I'd say it's an eight. Um, okay, how about like running Sims on specific spots or scripts, like of, you know, a stack size and, uh, you know, a big line versus button, something like that? Yeah, that's like, a, that's like a nine to 10 for sure. Like just running those same spots over and over again and trying to see what the solve is doing and then trying to be able to create a heuristic that works for you and that you can easily implement in game. That's basically how I study. So I, I'd say it's like a nine or a 10. All right. Now, what about preflop Sims? Preflop Sims. Like studying preflop ranges, oh, that's a 10. Like you need to have your preflop ranges down. And I still don't for MTTs. Like I just don't have them. And they're it's very difficult when like you kind of have to, I call it brain solver, where it's like you just like use like the amount of time I've spent in poker and Sims to kind of come out with like an output. If you don't know like what you're supposed to jam 30 big blinds, like button versus small blind, like that's a problem. So like having all those spots down is really important. You mean what you're supposed to jam with 30 blue blinds? As a small blind versus... Right, like jamming versus calling versus three betting small, like all of these sort of things, like just having that nuance is really important. And then also pairing that with the first two parts of the game of running hands and looking at scripts, that's kind of how I got better. I got better at poker. I think it's interesting that you said like nine or 10 for like the post-flop stuff. And then like when I asked you about pre-flop, it's like immediate 10. <laughs> yeah, because pre-flop is just really important. Like there's so many spots in the game tree for sure. I'm sure for like recreational players and I'm sure like for like lower, like lower stakes players, like low stakes, mid stakes for sure, where you play a hand and they tell their friend that's playing like a stake or two above them. And they say, oh yeah, I would just fold pre here. Like I wouldn't even worry about, I would just fold pre. Like that's really important because the whole game tree doesn't happen if you just have your ranges constructed. Like you just have to know what you're doing at the start of every hand. So it's like, that's sort of how I see it. How about watching high stakes players on, you know, live streams? Probably like a two, because like that's really enter like more entertainment wise, and it depends who. Obviously, like playing like watching high stakes players that are playing live definitely have reasons, and some of them are very studied for sure. 
But just because like you watch somebody do something doesn't mean you know how to implement it yourself, which could be very, very dangerous when the board texture is a little bit different. And I'm sure that some high stakes players might be doing something for specific reasons that aren't necessarily theory approved, like isoing a, a recreational player and going off with some crazy bluff combo, which obviously wouldn't happen in theory, but they had a, a read of some sort that their opponent was weak. Like that's a completely different thing than studying the game and learning for yourself than trying to learn from someone else, at least unobjectively without any input from the other perspective. How about uh, training videos? Uh, depends from where. And I'm not necessarily the best with asking about training sites just because I've never used one myself. Because when I first came up in poker, I had a, my friend that I knew from video games. So I guess video games kind of came through there. I was playing 510 and 1020 online that helped me get better and learn fundamentals and learn preflop for sure. And so I've always had like coaching help through poker and I never really used any training sites. But I'm sure there are some good ones. And I think there's some stuff that you can definitely take away. So I'd probably say like around like a seven. If you don't know how to run Sims, like find someone that can teach you and then sort of just get in the lab by yourself or with your friends that you whose game you respect and sort of try to find out the pieces of the puzzle. Because I just think poker is a really big puzzle with a lot of very, very, very small pieces. So like where maybe you spend five hours in Pio and you find one thing that you might change differently in a spot and like that puzzle fits. And then another one that's kind of close to that same idea sort of locks into. So like you keep decreasing the amount of puzzles, like the, but the puzzle pieces and things kind of make more sense to you. But the scariest part is always just starting and running Sims by yourself. I don't think there's anything more than like trying to learn for yourself versus having someone else tell you something. And how about joining a group chat or group training sessions? I think it depends on on who, because joining a group training session with the best in the world is going to be a lot different than joining a group training session with two, five live players at the casino. So it's all just really, really objective on like who's in the group. It's tough because like the people I work with are a 20 out of 10. It's just amazing to run spots with them every day and, and talk about strategy and how we think things make sense. But I'm sure if it was just going to be like me leading a discussion with people that like didn't really have maybe very much to offer in the sense of input in a strategy sense, that's not going to be like as fun or as exciting for me to like look through Sims and learn. Because at that point, it's more of me doing like coaching than it is like a mutual like exploration into like, like how the deck works. How about trying to play outside your comfort zone and like, you know, play either a format or a, a stake that you don't usually get a chance to play? I think trying new things at a lower stake makes sense because obviously you don't want to implement something. You have no idea what's going on at a higher stake. And like, let's say like you want to start check raising more, right? And you normally play like 10 cent, 25 cent online. Like if you start playing 25 cent, 50 cent online, you're probably going to torch a lot of money just because you're not really sure like what the heuristics are or what you're supposed to necessarily be doing overall. So like moving down and playing like two cent, five cent even, and just trying some things and seeing how people react and then sort of taking that confidence and having some sort of database of playing a bunch of hands in this particular node, and then sort of seeing the results you get from raising certain hands and why they make sense to raise, that could be very helpful. I'd probably put that at like a seven. Because I think at the end of the day, like that's kind of how I got better too. I only started using Pyro at least very effectively and actively in about May of last year. So only about like six, seven months, but I've probably spent about like four or five hours a day like let alone playing, just kind of running Sims, running spots or playing for 12 hours a day and then having a review session on Twitch. I remember I did that for like a couple months back over the summer. 
I just had to learn how to try new things because the solve was clearly doing things that I wasn't doing when I was playing lower stakes. Like it was clearly check raising more aggressively. It was clearly like finding turn bets with hands that don't really make sense to like the human brain. It's a little bit out there until you sort of see the pattern. And the only way you're going to be able to see that is by like just doing the work yourself. And it's going to stick a lot more like when you have like that quote unquote aha moment, so to speak, then if you find it for yourself, then someone else tell you something. My friend, Steven, that was my, my original coach basically told me the same thing where I was like, oh, what breakthroughs did you have when you sort of came up in poker? And he's like, poker is not that easy for me to just like give you the cheat code. But I can just tell you that while you play more and the more you play and the more you learn, the more things are going to start to make sense to you. And you're going to have mm-hmm. moments that are going to effectively change your outlook on poker as a whole. And just by putting yourself in the game and playing a bunch of spots and playing a lot of hands is the best way to be able to learn and do that. I like your puzzle analogy because I, you know, I do a lot of puzzles with my four-year-old son. Yeah. And it's just obviously so much easier once you get like, you know, those edge pieces, um, you know, plugged in, right? And then it just gives you this sense of comfort that you have some outline, even if you don't know what all sorts of things in that difficult middle area are. Because a lot of spots, especially... You would think that just because the board texture changes by one, like 10, 6, 4 and 10, 6, 5 seem really close. There's a lot of different things happening depending on where you're opening from, whether it's a three bet pot, four bet pot, like all of these sort of things that it's very easy to get in your own head and be like, oh, yeah, I've seen this spot before at this board. It's the same thing on this one, but it's not. And that's just a matter of doing more work and seeing that for yourself than taking someone else's word for it. That's exactly what Michael Acevedo said. He said that running specific spots is extremely overrated because you can get too attached. Well, it's overrated, especially if you get too attached and try to make, you know, false heuristics. Like, I think if you're using a sim to try to find out what your exact hand is supposed to be doing and whether you played an exact hand well, I think that's probably incorrect use. I think the idea is to try to find out what your overall range wants to do, what combos in your range wants to do, and then look at what your hand wants to do and how it fits into the overall range. Like that's way more important where it's like, okay, I have a gut shot, which gut shot is better to raise and why. And normally there's going to be a reason for it. And based off of that, that's more important than seeing if you played good by checking instead of raising, understand what is going on and then choose not to do it, which is a lot different than just kind of doing something and hoping that it's right. And that's basically the idea of why I learned theory and why a baseline is important. If you don't know where you're deviating off of, you're just kind of making guesses and you basically just playing like a brain game of like, I hope this makes sense because I'm a smart guy versus I know why this makes sense. I'm going to choose not to do it. And those are two completely different outlooks for sure. You mentioned 10.64 and 10.65 and how like at first glance, you might think they're similar and they're not really. Could you explain what you mean by that? Let's say like a button opens, you defend big blind and it's 10-6-4 versus 10-6-5. The straight draws that you're going to have as big blind are going to be a lot more apparent and you're going to have hands that are going to want to call versus raise. And then on 10-6-4, you're going to have some hands that you might want to raise more because you'll have some gut shots and you'll have some disconnected open-endeds versus on 10-6-5, you're going to have the 3-4, you're going to have the 7-8, which are going to be different if the board is 10-6-5 because then 3-4 becomes an open-ender, which is a different heuristic of having like a low show, low showdown value hand, like four high but also having equity in a straight draw. But you're drawing to a bad straight as well. So sometimes you get, if you raise and like you make your hand, like there's reverse implied odds of getting cooler to yourself. That's a completely different heuristic than having four five on three, four on jack six, five versus jack six, four. Basically an unblocker to to weaker hands. 
running sims has kind of made me like kind of go on tangents about poker all the time because like i speak really fast when i talk about poker because things make sense to me but it's not the best when trying to explain it to other people so stuff i've been doing is trying to work on slowing that down but like i just really enjoy like looking at spots and looking at sims and sort of finding out what the differences are for myself what's like the most pleasurable part about running a sim and like what part of it is great when I think about a spot and the solve reacts in the same way that I think I would react, that's really enjoyable to me. It's just like, okay, like I'm think I'm clearly thinking along the same lines as unexploitable, like optimal, like robot sort of approach. And I think there's something to that because not even in the sense of like shifting it over to practice, but just sort of sort of seeing the overall principles of the game itself, where it's like, okay, this makes sense from a computer because if I were to create the overall non-exploitable strategy given the ranges that are put in, this is why a solve is raising this hand third of the time and folding two thirds. And that's kind of what's enjoyable to me. And also like another part is like, I remember a specific hand I played where I basically randomized my decision on river of like choosing whether or not to call or fold. And I was basically like right on the money of like what a solve would do in that spot based on that action. And that felt really good too. And it wasn't even like a good hand. It was like ace high on the river in like a three bet pot. Where I was like, oh yeah, like I think I called this like 55% and fold 45. And then I rolled for it. I called and the guy was bluffing. Then I ran the sim with the ranges I have. And ace queen was 55, 45 call fold. And it was like, all right, I guess I'm the greatest. Like you just like have those sort of moments. Like obviously I play thousands of hands and I'm always wrong. But when you're right, it feels really good to know that you're on the right track, at least in one spot. This was obviously an online hand and you just used like one to a hundred. And I just use a randomizer, yeah. And then I use higher numbers as aggressive lines and lower numbers as smaller. There's a whole debate on Twitter about higher numbers versus smaller numbers, but that's for another time. I think I'm on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> one to 55. Right, like like 1% of the time you'll call. But for me, I guess I sort of see it like a speedometer where it's like 99, like, okay, I'm going fast. Yeah, no, <laughs> in the end, I guess it doesn't really matter. It's just, it's just aesthetics. Exactly. As long as you keep yourself balanced. Is there anything in that list that I that I didn't mention that is like a training technique that... As in something that's like helpful to be able to like improve in poker? I don't know. I think you kind of hit it. You kind of hit all of it. I think that running sims is important. Having friends that also... I think having friends is really important. Like friends, I put like, like, a, like an 100 out of 10. Like having friends that like you enjoy talking poker with and who are supportive of you, of you as you are of them. And like having that community where... You know, at the end of the day, like your friends aren't trying to slight you because they want to have a higher win rate than you do, like this, that, and the other. And like in a zero sum game, like it's better to just kind of enjoy the ride of like learning the game and seeing where like where you can go with it, especially if you have like friends because friends are important. You know, it's nice to have people to understand your struggle. So like, I really enjoy like getting on Discord and like being like, oh yeah, I played this hand today. Or did you guys play any hands that was interesting? Like this, that, and the other. And it's nice to know that like there are people with you like on your own journey but at the end of the day, like a win for one of them is like a win for the group, you know, because like the group is sort of like learning together as like learning some spots, learning this, that, and the other. So it's like, oh yeah, like he took down a tournament. That's great. The group is doing good things. Like we're studying a lot. We're learning a lot. And we're also having the results that prove that it's, it's working out. That's really important to me too, I think for sure. Well, that's a great way to end it. Landon Tice, you can find him at Twitter um, and Twitch at Landon Tice. He also has a Substack and a Discord, and he does commentary sometimes on Joey Ingram's channel. He is very active out there, and it's been wonderful that you've been able to give us a little bit of your time, Landon, and also click off the very difficult 4-3 offsuit. Oh, yeah. 
It's fun. Would you say 3-4 or 4-3, by the way? I'd probably say 4-3 just because I go by like descending value of hands. I'd say king-queen off, not queen-king off. Yeah, but if it's 7-8, you would say 7-8, not 8-7, right? That's a fair point. Yeah, that's why I feel like 4-3 is like a, a weird one though. Because, I mean, right, like, cause you don't play it that much. So it's like 7-8 is 7-8 right. suited. You play a lot. I like 4-3. No, actually, no, I like 3-4. I think, you know what it is? I think it's because like when you're going in ascending order with numbers, it makes sense. Like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. So like 9-10 suited, I would say 9-10 suited. I wouldn't say 10-9 suited. But for king-queen, because they're not numbers and they're like, they're objects, it's like the hierarchy of the value of them. Oh yeah, you definitely start saying jack-10 at some point. Yeah. So I think like, like when I say like 5-6 suited, I say 5-6 suited, I don't say 6-5 suited. Okay, so 3-4 it is. Landing I think it's 3-4 off. I think it's 3-4. I like 3-4. We figured we've, something we've out. We solved it. Yeah, we'll get a solver for it. <laughs> Landon Dice on 3-4 offsuit. Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent. You won't see me, see me stunting. No, never, never stagger. Believe it, I'm the real thing.